0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Always, always great to have you with me. Wouldn't want to make this journey through space and time on my own. And as always, before the episode, big thanks to all the people who have joined my site on patreon.com because it's the financial support from patreon.com that makes all of the difference. And everyone who supports Patreon is is directly supporting everything else that Paul and I do. The love letter to the British Isles, the love letter to the world and all of that. So if you've joined up, that's great. A thousand thanks to each and every one of you. And if you're not a member yet and you'd like to be, Here's your chance, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, part with some cash on a monthly or an annual basis, it's cheaper by the year, Uh, become a member, you join a family of like-minded, curious, questioning types who are interested in, who love history, so it's a great opportunity, come along, be part of the community. That's it for the advert, it's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A born fighter who battled all his life older, out of shape and heartbroken, the sharks are circling, his own son is at his throat, the king of France is making mischief, the Scots are prowling on his northern border and on the horizon is King Canute of Denmark, making plans to come to England with a great army war is looming and money is needed, it's tax, tax and tax again, as the most remarkable statistical document in the history of Europe is drawn up the Doomsday Book. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode it was 1077 AD as we travelled to Italy to see two ruthlessly stubborn leaders at each other's throats as church and state wrestled for power. Where are we this week? Morning, Paul. Uh, This week we're hopping over the channel to England and skipping forward in time to 1085 AD. Dark storm clouds gathering over the country. Ever the fighter and with trouble ahead, King William is determined to top up his war coffers. So he gets a team to work compiling an extraordinarily detailed survey of England, which will help him increase his tax revenue. And the people call this survey Doomsday because it reminds them of the Day of Judgment. Well, we're in, we're in merry old England, where more and more, I think, from this point on in the Love Letter to the World, people will be hearing familiar place names, uh, because you know we've reached a point where, from now on, our part of the world, Europe, even Britain begins to be noticed, begins to have some contribution to make to the bigger story of the world. In terms of a time, we're we're sort of 1085, 1086, and it's to do with uh, William the Conqueror, who obviously in 1066 had invaded England and had taken the English throne for himself from the Anglo-Saxon Harold Godwinson, who, by the you know by the calculations of the Anglo-Saxon dynasty, was the rightful king? But to be to be specific, we're, at this moment in time, and we'll move backwards and forwards. But it, let's say it's ten eighty five, okay? And William the Conqueror, William the First, he doesn't have his troubles to seek at this particular moment in time, and it comes as no surprise, probably, to William because his life, his time as a as a king his time as a, as a ruler, has always been fraught. He's always had to fight incessantly to hold on to what he's got. He was known, by, by one and all, uh, as William the Bastard, because his mummy wasn't married to his daddy, Robert I of Normandy his mummy wasn't married to him when she had him. So it, t- technically uh, he was William the Bastard and it's worth bearing in mind because <laughs> he was also a bit of a bastard <laughs> anyway. Uh, he, and as I say, he fought all his life for what he thought was his by right. You know, So he, he, whether he was right or wrong in thinking he was entitled to, to, the, to whatever it was he wanted to lay his hands on, he, he never had it easy. At this point, is he still in control of Normandy? Yes, uh uh-huh. He's still... I mean, he eventually hands off Normandy to his eldest son. So, So, yes, I mean, William's arrival in 1066, that was what brought England and France under one umbrella. Everything that then happens between various kings, English and French, vying for overall control it starts now or, or it started as soon as William the put his bottom on the throne because he was the he was Duke of Normandy when he arrived so he, he brought that with him he already had that in the bag he was descended from Rollo not the chocolates the Viking remember we, we have done this Rollo was a Viking warlord and he made so much trouble for King Charles the Simple of France not not simple minded straightforward is what it meant it made so much trouble for him that charles the simple bought him off with territory gave him land he said look just stop stop attacking everything take this take something and have it for your own and at the same time be a christian defend your territory keep out other vikings and would that could we is that something that you could work with? And Rollo said yes, and he was as good as his word. He stopped Viking attacks on on the rest of France largely by bringing his own people in, and you know, and, and pacifying them and having them obey the rules. And Normandy becomes it's the land of the Northmen, the land of the Vikings. So William's descended directly from Rollo. He's he's his great great. Uh, so Normandy is is his, is his birthright, I and mean, he you know he gets it from from his father Robert the First. But there's always challengers. He's he's always been challenged, and people are always trying to take away from him that which he has. He was a died-in-the-wool fighter. Nobody ever regarded him as as a great. He wasn't one of these characters like Charlemagne, you know, who established effectively a university around him and, and attracted all the all the clever people and and wanted to get involved and all that. He didn't. He wasn't like that at all. I mean, there's evidence that he tried to learn Old English, but packed it in because it was too hard. And uh, that wasn't really what he was about. He was was a more practical individual, Um, but he he just had to fight all the time to hold on to to whatever he had. Uh, So although he arrived in England in 1066, won the war or won the battle, he had to fight the, the war for the rest of his life, really, because he was always under pressure from those that thought it shouldn't be his. In 1051, and this is important, uh, you know, behind every great man is a great woman, he married Matilda of Flanders, as she was known, and it would appear that she was indeed the love of his life. Unusually for a medieval king, there's, there's not really any evidence of him being unfaithful, and kings invariably were. You know, they had mistresses all over the shop and just casual encounters as they, as they felt the feeling moved them, but... There's no evidence of that around William I. So it seems like he was devoted to Matilda and she to him. And she was certainly, the, she seems to have been the real source of strength for him. And she was the mother of his children. I think they had about nine over the years. They were a proper couple. They were properly together. Uh, his eldest son was Robert. And they called him Robert hose which means short stockings or short, Trousers almost, you know, but you know, that's what they wore, you know, stocking, hose, cut hose. Um, so, you know, he had this nickname applied to him. Obviously, people were having a bit of fun at his expense for some reason. But Robert was always at his father's throat. He was always trying to replace him on the throne. Not always directly, but he was always kind of there, at him. So that, so that was always the case. So I mentioned 1085 as, as a useful date. Well, in, in 1085, Robert embarked upon a serious attempt on his father's throne. And at this point, he had the support of King Philip of France, which is obviously significant. That's serious muscle. William's own half-brother, Odo, who was Bishop of Bayeux, home of the tapestry, uh, but Odo, Bishop of Bayou, was inciting... William's subjects in Normandy and in England to to rise against them. King Malcolm of Scotland, one of those kings of Scotland that, you know, unless you're interested in Scottish history, you you might not have heard of. But Malcolm was prowling around on the English border, sensing blood in the water, ready to, you know, jump in and and get involved. Uh, King Canute of Denmark is on his way to England as well. With, or he's preparing invasion with Robert the Frisian, Count of Flanders. And uh, he's got, a, you know, so there's a great combined army. So there's been trouble before, but in 1085, the you know, the great storm cloud is gathering. And that King Canute of Denmark, he's different to the earlier King Canute of England. Yeah, there's only two kings of England that were ever called great. One of them was Alfred and the other one's Canute. Canute the Great. Um, he's the character that does the trick on the beach, showing everybody that his powers are limited. You know, even I, smashing chap that I am, can't turn back the tide. You know that that, that whole thing often gets misremembered as though he went down there and was going to stop the tide coming in and got his feet wet and made him look silly. It's not what he was doing at all. He was underlining to people as a sort of an act of piety, almost an act of humility. I'm pretty impressive, but I can't turn back the tide. And he didn't call himself great either. It was applied to him by others. So, 1085 is a bad year for for William. You know, he's been been on the throne since 1066. He's been challenged and been fighting to hold on all his life. And now here it comes again, really the biggest storm cloud ever to gather against him. 1085. Um, And it's worth bearing in mind that at this point he's... Well, he's old and fat and broken-hearted. He was descended from Rollo, who was a big bloke. Remember, uh, he he was, you know, Rollo the walker because he was too big for any horse. Well, uh, William had that bloodline and seems to have been a chubby fella, uh, to put it mildly. And Matilda was two years dead. She died in 1083. So his heart had slipped its mooring, let's say. So... You'd say the, the decks were sort of stacked against him. However, however, he was a tough old bastard and old and fat and broken-hearted or not, he wasn't about to roll over and give it all up. So he comes out swinging. <laughs> He's actually in Normandy looking after his holdings there when he finds out about this guy this, disastrous set of circumstances that are shaping up back in England. So the first thing he does is he sends word to lay waste to the coastline of England so that any any invading troops, you know, for miles inland, there's nothing. There's no crops to take. There's no livestock to rustle. He just destroyed everything. I mean, can you imagine what that's like? I mean, you say it quick. He laid waste. That's people. You know, that's people's livelihoods and all the rest of it are just... You know, that's what these characters are like. But anyway, this is, this is what he does. And he also, uh, even by the standards of the day, when it comes to raising armies, he raises an unbelievably big army of mercenaries over in Normandy. He paid, pays for them, right, to come. And, you know, even by the standards of the day, people who see this host forming are, are pretty impressed. They are so numerous. And he crosses back to England with them and he, he, he puts them up. <laughs> on his nobles' estates, right? So all the all the rich that are beholden to William end up with all these mercenaries living on their land and being fed and watered and sheltered and all the rest of it. So it's a, it's a big imposition on everybody. But long story short, because this is not really the point of it, he's successful. He, he turns it all back. He turns it all around, OK? He isn't invaded. He is successful in defending his realm, But he knows all the time that, one way or another, this has all got to be paid for. You've got to pay, you know, the mercenaries have to be paid for and all the rest of it. So he's holding court. He's in Gloucester, 1085, by Christmas time, you know, when he's got things back under control. And he commissions what becomes Doomsday Book. What he does there is send people out to find out exactly how much he's got. In terms of the kingdom because in that way of Kings you know divine right and all the rest of it he kind of figured everything was his there might be whatever nobles and peasants squatting on the place but it was his England was his so he he sends people out to find out exactly what is there and after Magna Carta, okay, well, Magna Carta doesn't exist until 1215, but historians looking at the documents available from the past in England would say that Magna Carta 1215 is number one, while Doomsday Book is number two. It's that important. The fact that it was ever attempted, it's a bit like, you think, how, who would even set out to make the London Underground now? It's, you can't believe it ever started. Well, the task of Doomsday Book, it just seems like how would you how would you have the reach in the 11th century to undertake such a thing? But the fact is, a, the whole swathe of territory from the River Tees in the north down was surveyed. That's what they called it. The scribes who were involved in it called it a descriptio, a, a survey of all England, and it was amazing. People went out and found out who, who, who was everywhere. who who Who's on the land? Who are the farmers? Who have they got working for them? How many grains of wheat are there stored or growing? How many cattle? How many sheep? How many pigs? How many horses? How many ploughs are there on every farm? Everything. It, you, when you think about it, it's, it's really pretty impressive. When you've got to do everything on horseback to get to every, every tucked away valley, every you know every hillside sheep farm whatever they're all they're all you know they've all got to be counted it's absolutely extraordinary but within a hundred days right they say William commissions it in Christmas time 1085 and a hundred days later by well by August 1086 Williams sat in front of the fire at Old Serum one of his places of operation in Wiltshire reading it right it's in by August it's absolutely incredible And what it is basically is the basis for taxation because everything's costing him a fortune and he wants to know how much money he can gather up and he doesn't want anyone, you know, lying to him. He wants to know. When he comes to you to raise taxes, he wants to know in advance what you've got so that he can... He doesn't want some chancellor saying, I've got nothing, empty pockets. He short-circuits that. He already knows what you've got and therefore what he's entitled to get from you in the form of taxation. And his people, they didn't call it doomsday book. It was the people, it was us that called it doomsday book, because it was as unavoidable as the the book of judgment that they imagined would come when, you know, when, when Jesus turns up to find out who's been bad or good. It was as unavoidable and undeniable as the book of judgment. because it was like a, it was like avoiding doom like avoiding destiny it was just there there's a, a character richard fitz nigel who was treasurer to henry ii right that he he's one of william's descendants he in the 1170s this guy richard fitz nigel described how the the people were put in mind of the book of revelations the book of judgment in the book of revelations quote the natives call this book doomsday that is the day of judgment for just as no judgment of that final severe and terrible trial can be evaded by any subterfuge, so when any controversy arises in the kingdom, its word, that's doomsday book, cannot be denied. At the time either it was commissioned and completed, there was nothing, anything remotely like it anywhere in Europe. No other king had ever thought to do it, or if they had thought to do it, they'd never been able to rule it out. So, it's an extraordinary statement, you know, and it, and it underlines the sort of man that William was. I mean, th- if you think about it, he's been fighting all his life. Fighting, like he becomes Duke of Normandy, and he's fighting for it forever. And then he takes the English throne in 1066. And for the next 20 years, he's fighting to hold on to that. And as late in the day as 1085, 1086, he's still got the energy to commission and see through, see it through. The Doomsday Survey. He's really quite some guy, indomitable. You know, he does this in the aftermath of losing the love of his life. He sets out to, you know, to have this document put together, and it then it forms. I mean, it forms the basis for everything. Robert, his son, he gets Normandy. His other son, who's also William, gets England. That's the way he divvies it up. And then, of course, after after William the First is gone, William the Second and and Robert, they of in Normandy, they they fight over who should have what, and then comes Henry and all the rest of it. And in that way of things, his descendants don't have quite what he had in terms of his, his determination. But Doomsday Book, I would say, is his monument. This was quite something, and it set in train really everything that happens next. Built as an expression of awe in the face of the invisible, the Karnak stones in France, Silbury Hill and stone circles throughout Britain, ziggurats of Mesopotamia, pyramids in Egypt and Central and South America. Then mountains of stone are raised to exalt the Christian God, etch Hagia Sophia, Durham, vast, beautiful and entrancing spaces capable of evoking great emotions. Not until rockets set off to the moon would spirits be invited to soar so high. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.